Hey, it's Kristen. You're listening to Rational in Portland. Hey, it's Kristen. Thank you for joining us on Rational in Portland. As a lot of you know, I'm a founding member of an organization called North America Recovers, which was conceived of by Michael Schellenberger, who ran for governor of California and wrote the book San Francisco, and Andrea Suarez of We Heart Seattle. And there were 40 of us who went to a retreat in Seattle to decide what the organization was going to be and what our founding principles were, what our policy prescriptions were going to be. We put together a website, NorthAmericaRecovers.org. So one of the people who was at the retreat in Seattle is named Grant Denton. And he is a former homeless drug addict. His drug of choices, he'll explain to everybody in this episode was methamphetamine, but he also sought out and used fentanyl, which is kind of amazing now that it's in absolutely every drug, including certainly drugs that people are not looking for fentanyl in, like Adderall and cocaine. And we've had some really heartbreaking deaths in Portland, including of high schoolers. I, I, I think by all accounts, they didn't know what they were getting. And it's really scary. Grant will talk about how he turned his life around and the kinds of projects that he is engaged in in recovery, including a pod homeless encampment. I guess it's not really an encampment because it's pods. The pods are made out of Portland, he said, and he oversees this sanctioned pod area with and in partnership under Washoe County. So Grant is based in Reno, Nevada, and he'll explain that this is a no barrier pod situation. But once you're in, you have to agree to follow a number of rules. And if you don't follow those rules, you're out of the pods. And I think that that is really distinct from the sanctioned camps that Mayor Wheeler is talking about putting into the city of Portland. One of my concerns with these sanctioned camps that we're putting, apparently putting into the city of Portland, is that they're run by an organization called Urban Alchemy. And according to Michael Schellenberger, Urban Alchemy runs some of the sanctioned camps in San Francisco. And Schellenberger did a Twitter thread and um, reported on the fact that San Francisco's, as he calls it, taxpayer-funded open drug scene, quote-unquote, safe sleeping site, 
Michael Schellenberger says was Orwellian. He says addicts stayed intense all day smoking fentanyl and engaging in sex trafficking. And he says, Michael Schellenberger says, now the city admits it found a stillborn baby in a porta potty. The operator of this site, Michael Schellenberger goes on to say, the nonprofit Urban Alchemy, now that is the same contractor we have just contracted with, the city of Portland has just contracted with, has since moved on to open a homeless shelter in Lower Knob Hill and was recently granted a contract by the city, he's talking about San Francisco here, to perform homeless outreach. The organization holds $62 million in contracts in San Francisco while also providing homeless services in half a dozen cities. So a place that is operating a site where a stillborn baby was found in a porta potty that Michael Schellenberger describes as Orwellian and as a taxpayer-funded open drug scene where addicts stayed intense all day smoking fentanyl and engaging in sex trafficking does not sound like the kind of place we should be pouring millions into. However, as Oregon Live reported on March 13th, 2023, the California nonprofit Urban Alchemy will manage Portland's first mass tent encampment. And apparently we have spent $5.1 million a year, signed a contract at least to do that, to operate a 150-person site. And there's going to be an additional $400,000 for startup costs. That estimate, this article says, did not include the cost of meals, utilities, or the construction of the site, which the city is committed to cover, according to city documents. Good God. The Oregon Live article continues saying the urban alchemy has not been particularly successful at helping people transition to permanent housing. As of February 6th, fewer than 2% of the people served at the LA tent site run by Urban Alchemy and transitioned to permanent housing. Portland's first sanctioned encampment, Oregon Live continues, will be built. In the central east side, of course, where we love to situate these projects, at 1490 Southeast Gideon Street, a location just north of Powell Boulevard. Now, a very once storied high school, Cleveland High School, is right on Powell. And I went ahead and mapped where Cleveland is in regard to this very first sanctioned encampment. It's about a 15-minute walk. Now, the last thing Cleveland High School needs is a sanctioned encampment with absolutely no barrier to get in, run by a place where a stillborn baby was apparently found in a porta potty at another one of their sanctioned camps within walking distance of where these students are trying to go to school. Cleveland has been under siege, really, for a fair amount of time. During COVID, there was a homeless encampment that was growing and growing and growing that the city refused to remove just right off, literally right off the track. And there's photographs of piles of needles, a gun, a knife, et cetera, things that were found at this homeless encampment. Parents were complaining. Kids were complaining. And I think the idea was we don't want to move any homeless encampments because of COVID. The problem is 
even though the, this encampment was eventually removed, Cleveland's troubles have continued. There was a student shot in December of 2022 who was 16 years old. This is from opb.org, December 12th, 2022. says, Student shot injured outside of Cleveland High School in Southeast Portland. There will be no classes Tuesday, but school will be open to students for support. A 16-year-old student is recovering from a gun injury sustained outside Cleveland High School in Southeast Portland. Officers responded to a 911 call. The student arrived at a nearby hospital. About 20 minutes later, the high school went into lockdown when the gunshots were first reported. Nobody else at this school was injured. And then eventually students were released. There were no classes. It looks like the next day. And just generally, our high school students in Portland are really suffering. Since October 2022, we've had six kids shot outside of their high schools. And I talked about this on the Kennedy show, which is on Fox business. She was, she's actually from Lake Oswego and she was kind enough to have me on. She's a libertarian, apparently based on the reading that I did about her. She's, she was a very pleasant person. Uh, And I just find these high school shootings absolutely incredible. And, you know, Aaron Schmatz from the Portland police association, the union head of the Portland police bureau, when he came on, he talked about the tragedy of the elimination of school resource officers from our high schools. And this is the kind of thing that they're trained to prevent. They're trained to get to know the students, to get to know their friends. Police are saying that the shooting, at least at Cleveland, was not random. We've had kids shot outside of another Southeast Portland high school, Franklin, and opb.org, January 8th, 2023, detailed that there was a basketball game between Franklin and McDaniel high schools and there was a shooting and police detained a 15 year old on an unrelated arrest warrant that they're apparently looking at as a suspect. So this is absolutely tragic. Now, one of the reasons that I love Grant Denton's work in recovery is that he is also a motivational speaker who goes around to schools, elementary through high school. And his message to kids is that they need to get comfortable being uncomfortable without substances, without numbing out from their life, because life is about discomfort. Life is about hard things. Life is about enduring hard things. Now, he's not aiming this message at psychiatrically disturbed children or children in need of medication or to be under the care of a psychiatrist. The message is geared at run-of-the-mill kids who eventually we know are looking in droves to numb themselves out with substances and they're getting hit with fentanyl pills. Now, many times it sounds like this is totally not something they were looking to do. These teenagers have been poisoned, but the point is they're looking for opioids to numb out and they're getting pills that contain fentanyl and they're overdosing. 
This is from March 8th, 2022. It's from Multnomah County's website. And it says Portland police on Monday night announced the deaths of two teenagers from a suspected overdose of fentanyl. Officers responded to an overdose death of a high school aged youth in the teen's possession were suspected fentanyl pills, commonly known as M30s. The next day on Monday, officers responded to another suspected overdose of a high school aged youth. Officers also found pills like the ones found on Sunday. February 22nd, 2023, Oregon Live reported that a 15-year-old at Franklin High School in Southeast Portland overdosed on fentanyl. 15 years old. On December 12th, 2022, the Washington Post reported that more people have died of synthetic opioid overdoses than the number of U.S. military personnel killed during the Vietnam Iraq and Afghanistan wars combined. It's the deadliest drug epidemic in American history, and fentanyl is now the leading cause of death for Americans aged 18 to 49, according to a Washington Post analysis of death data for 2021 from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And what I think is so great about Grant Denton's message to kids is that it's totally normal to feel scared, to feel anxious, to feel depressed, to feel uncomfortable, particularly when you're in the throes of adolescence, your body is changing inside it out. You feel terrible. You're going through all sorts of things that you've never experienced before that you feel uncomfortable talking about to even trusted adults. And his message to kids is, this is all totally normal. This is garden variety life stuff. Better get used to it because life is difficult. And along with it comes many, many, many challenges that will perhaps be worse than any of the things that you're currently experiencing. And learn to develop coping mechanisms so that you're not looking for pills that may be laced with fentanyl and may kill you to numb out from your life because that is not the way to experience life. That's not life. And he says that he'll ask kids things like even, you know, he tailors the message depending on the age of the children, but he'll ask kids, Hey, how many of you have experienced something really terrible or experienced something you consider traumatic? He said, virtually all of the hands go up in the room. And then he says, okay, see, you know, look around. This is normal. This will continue. This is part of life. And the point is to learn to develop coping mechanisms, very akin, I think, to cognitive behavioral therapy that consists of things like positive self-talk, surrounding yourself with community, the things that we know work to keep people from spiraling into mental illness and succumbing to substance use disorder and death. And I, I just think that message of prevention is really important. And it's one that we're really not hearing in schools, certainly not in Portland. I mean, I have kids in school in the city of Portland and the messages overwhelmingly, I mean, I'm, I'm not in Portland public schools anymore because they were closed while private schools were open. And my, I was lucky enough to have resources to send mine to private, but I still get all the emails from Portland public and the message front and center is don't feel uncomfortable safe spaces. Don't do anything that would upset somebody. 
Don't do anything that would hurt somebody's feelings. If your feelings are hurt, that is a terrible tragedy. I mean, the message needs, of course, you shouldn't be mean to somebody. But the message should really be about how to cope with uncomfortable things that come along in our life, not how to ensure some kind of shell around children's feelings and, you know, make sure that they're able to walk out for climate justice, which, I mean, that's not a joke. That's something high school kids at Portland Public Schools regularly do and are cheered on by government leaders to do. And the focus is on things like putting tampons in kindergarten boys' bathrooms. That's also, that's not a joke. Look it up. That's a real thing passed by the Oregon State Legislature. It's part of gender-affirming care to try to encourage safe spaces for people. But they can't keep their own darn students safe from being shot outside their high schools. So there's this bizarre disconnect in Portland between what is perceived as the real threat to kids and what is actually the threat to kids. Shootings outside of their high schools and, and overdoses. And where is the discussion around that? Schools, as far as I know, still have not agreed to bring in resource officers back into the schools to prevent against things like shootings. So Portland police officers are walking in without a relationship to those kids, without a relationship to those teachers. And as Aaron Schmatz explained in his episode on this podcast, those relationships are broken. They're all going to have to be reestablished. Those were wonderful relationships that have been built over years and years and years. And in fact, the school resource officer team for Portland had won an award right before it was defunded and disbanded. And, you know, Portland Public Schools has said things like, oh, maybe we'll bring them back if they're not in uniform. I mean, what kind of message does that send? How are, what what are these kids supposed to do when they leave high school? How are they supposed to function in the world where police officers are, are operating ostensibly, at least in most functional cities, maybe not, you know, certainly not at full force in this one, but they do exist. They weren't disbanded. They, they've been there. We still have very few, um, but we, because we can't get them all through training because as Aaron Schmatz explained on his episode, we shut training down due to COVID for a couple of years. So he could hire 500 today and they're not going to get through for two years. But the point is we still have police. They're still actively operating in society. And these kids are graduating high school and Portland public schools doesn't want them to understand how to interact with a uniformed officer. It's almost like Portland public schools messages. The police are the enemy, you know, which is why they got rid of them in the first place. The message is they're, they're scary. They're the enemy you know, we're going to put tampons in the kindergarten boys restroom and we're going to create safe spaces and you're going to be able to walk out in the name of climate change, but you're also going to be shot outside of your school potentially, or at least there's certainly the danger of that. And pills are infiltrating these schools and kids as young as 15 are are overdosing. So where's the messaging around coping with any of this and equipping these children for a a diff, frankly, a difficult life. And good Lord, is that an important message for kids growing up in Portland, Oregon. As I'm recording this, the most recent story, March 28th, 2023, that just came out, kptv.com, two victims 
in Portland triple murder were Portland public school students. The article says two of the three victims in a deadly North Portland shooting Saturday with students in Portland public schools, according to the Portland Police Bureau. Just before 12.30 p.m., officers responded to a shooting. When they arrived, they found three people dead in a vehicle in the middle of the intersection. According to Portland Police, it was a 19-year-old, a senior at Roosevelt High School, and a 17-year-old, a junior at Franklin High School that were identified. The third victim was a 20-year-old. Grant Denton's message is incredibly timely and I think really important for kids in Portland to hear and important for those of you who are parents out there to hear that you can equip your kids to engage in a life of resilience and and grit and not turn to substances even when it feels like your world is collapsing around you and even when your peers are being shot in your city. So on that note, I think it's more important than ever that we hear this message from my friend and co-founding member of North America Recovers, Grant Denton, who lived his life as a homeless drug addict and is now in recovery and helping others achieve a life of recovery and helping to prevent children from engaging in substance use disorder. Grant Denton, thank you so much for joining us on Rational in Portland. It's so good to see your face and talk to you. I think it's you. a big deal. We have to go out and, and talk about the things so that people know about the things and all the different avenues. And, you know, I think it's important. So what we're doing right now is I got some funding from an insurance MCO, um, Silver Summit. And, uh, and what, what, what I'm going to do is we go in and there's, there's, it's called grit. The program is grow, refine, integrate, thrive. And, uh, we go in and we, we, we get folks into the gym, we get them training and that's it. Right. People, uh, it's, and it's more of a reentry thing. Like, so reentry from the streets, reentry from, uh, prison. And, um, and it, and it, and it gets us comfortable with being uncomfortable, gets us back in the gym, gets us back healthy. And then we also, uh, go out. Um, we do a wellness class that's about goal setting, about taking ownership and control of your own life, right? And then, um, and then we go do vol- we'll go volunteer in the community. So we're just slowly trying to, while they're in treatment, while we got them, you know. And the thing is, like, w- if you got them, go to go to work. And so uh, we're going to we're working with five different treatment centers now. We're at, we're we're going to pick either pick them up and take them to the gym, or just like that call, I'll set up a gym inside their treatment inside their treatment center. I'll go in and give me a room and I'll turn it into a gym. You know, I know fitness is a huge part of your recovery. Have you always been interested in that? Um, yes. Uh, I was a wrestler in high school. Um, and then I went down and then I started, I was a fire breather, uh, on the strip in Vegas for four years. We traveled everywhere. I walked on stilts and breathed fire. I'll send you videos. Um, but, uh, but the thing was, is for that is I, I was, I was always skinny. I weighed like a buck 50, you know, when I started doing that and, um, and I had to do it with my shirt off. And so I wanted to look good with my shirt off. And so I started working out then, and then, uh, went down a different path. And last time I was locked up, um, I was facing like five to seven years in prison. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, you, I'm, I gotta be stupid, right? Because I'm 36 years old. I haven't 
done anything with my life. I fathered two kids that I never, ever take care of or never see. And, um, and I don't really have any real career options. And so I, um, if I'm stupid, I want to be the best looking dumb guy. So I'm just going to fucking train. And you're also a single dad, right? It's amazing that you find time for all this. You're raising your boys yourself. I am now. Um, then it was, uh, it was their mom, their mom, like we, uh, addicts often do this is, um, first I'm doing drugs behind her back. Right. And then, um, and then I kind of brought her into the drug world and you'll, you'll see that a lot with couples. Like it's usually one that starts it and then, um, and I'm hiding it from her and then she catches me enough times and I introduce her into this drug life. And we went through our phases. We went through phases of crack alcohol, meth. And, uh, and so when, when my second kid was born, my second son, Roman, when he was born, we, um, he had cocaine in his, in his stool. And so he was, uh, he was taken from us and, um, we were given, cause I was homeless when he was born and, uh, and we were given like, um, things to do. And I, I didn't do the things and I ended up going back to the streets and she got her, her life together. So the kids were with her and she's living with her, her dad and her dad was kind of fathering the kids. And then I get locked up. I go to rehab and I didn't see the kids for a minute. And then one day uh, she uh, drops the kids off to me and I could tell that she was using. And, uh, and so I ended up, the kids ended up coming with me and then I brought, brought them out to Reno. With me. Yeah. And from our offline in-person and telephone conversations, it sounds like your boys are, incredibly well adjusted do you think that's because they watched you get recovery kids are really well adjusted um and i and i i think it's because they didn't just get to see me fall they also got to see me climb um that's important too and and because i'm a i'm a hard ass too i think a lot of times parents in recovery um feel guilty for not being there so they don't want to like they want to be friends with their kids and you know they're they're so shamed what they did. Cause I have friends that are like, especially in recovery. Like I was never there when they were this and the kids, like kind of kids kind of leverage that, you know, like you weren't there when I was growing up. So you can't tell me what to do now, you know? And, and I, and I, I think that there's a, there, that comes with parenting and I'm totally opposite from that. Like there's, I'm like, you ain't like, I know it's, you know, like I work with folks right now and I see things in them. Like, and what do you want to do? And, and, and what do you want to do with, you know, anyways, the, I'm not like, and so like I, my kids, I'm, I'm hardcore, I'm very rigid. I'm very like, and I do things with them though, too. Like my son uh, also boxes with me, my 14 year old, he's got his first fight coming up. You know, my, uh, my 17 year old, he's, I'm, I'm tough with him, but he's, he's my homie, you know, like, so we, I, and that's it. I think that they got to see their, their dad climb uh, a little bit. I just think you're a huge inspiration for parents in recovery, what kind of message do you have for the parents who are in recovery out there listening right now? I, so I, I think it's a bad idea to not talk about it, but I also think it's a bad idea to talk about it too much. Right. So like, um, it, they, your kids, I mean, unless you were a complete, like, even when I had a dad that was very abusive and, uh, and he was abusive to my mom, he was abusive to us. And at a certain point, I was like, man, screw this guy. But it wasn't until I was older, older, you know. But when I was younger, it didn't matter. Like, my, you know, like, your kids are going to love you 
no matter what. They don't know any different. They just know that you're their parent. They love the shit out of you. They just, you know, and so um, I think it's important to, to remember that, like, even though you made mistakes, your kids aren't going to judge you like that. It's how you behave now that's important, right? It's not like that you're like, I oh, what a bad person. Ah, yeah, we're all bad people. You do better, or not we're all bad people. I believe that people are inherently good. We just do bad stuff and we have a maladaptive response to things. And if we were an addict, you know, I've had guys that come into my sober living houses when I was working and working in sober living. And, and they're like, you know, I'm going to get, I'm like, why are you, what, what's your reason now? What's your why now to change? And they'll be like, well, because of my kids. And I'm like, well, how old are your kids? They're like eight. I'm like, that's not your reason. Can't make it your kids. Cause if you've been, you know, if you've got an eight year old son and you've been high the whole time, you can't make it your kids. It's gotta be something bigger than that. You're not a bad person. And that was it too. It was like, you're not a bad person. If I didn't get right from my kids, because it was bigger, it was a bigger problem than that. You know, I didn't know how to be a dad. I didn't know what a dad was. And, it, and, and the, the issue that I had was, wasn't that it was superseded my love for my kids, right? But it was, it was bigger than that. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't that. So people feel bad, like that they can't get, I can't even get clean for my kids. Well, hold on. You can't get clean for yourself. You can't get clean for your career. You can't get clean for other relationships. You just pump the brakes on that. But once you do get clean, that's what's important is modeling behavior showing your kids that you can climb out i came from this you've seen where i was you know and uh and you saw what i was able to do so what does that mean for you and you know what got me there you know what got me there you know and this is uh this is a conversation i have with my kids a lot especially when we do some knucklehead things i'm like you already know this you don't have to learn that lesson it took me 36 years you know you don't have to learn that lesson and and that's that's i to parents in recovery uh, that's what but it's important what you do now. What you did before is what you did. I, don't, I wouldn't focus on that, you know. When did your struggle with substance use disorder start? I started using um, early, early. Uh, it, you know, it was around the time where there was the just say no, right? Just say no. And, uh, and there was. Well, that's when I grew up. So unfortunately, that means that you're my vintage. 80s, man. I was born in 78. And Just Say No came out. And they had commercials on TV with a dude that took an egg and he put it in the frying pan. He's like, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. And he shows it to you. Any questions? And you're like, no. Drugs are going to fry my brain. This is terrible. And and they're right, right? Drugs will fry your brain. Um, But what happened with me is I, uh, I ended up doing a lot of drugs. And, and I did fry my brain, but what they didn't tell you is that there's a way out. You know, there was like drugs, fry your brain. And, and even if you told me that I didn't like, I didn't do drugs because I was like, I can't wait to fry my brain. You know, as a matter of fact, maybe not want to do drugs. And I took the test booklets and I got my dare card, you know, I got my dare certificate. It was, the thing is, is they told you to, that the answer is to just say no. That seems pretty simple. seems like a, Freaking simple plan. Just say no. Oh, is that it? Just say no. Great. Um, well, you're not, when you start drugs, you're not like saying no to the drug, right? You're saying yes to what comes with it. And what it was for me was, um, it was, I remember my homies, right? One of my homies, I wanted to be part of that crew. I was raised up in a, in a predominantly black neighborhood and, and, uh, there was gangs in this neighborhood, right? And in this pool. You're in Reno now. Was this in Vegas? I was in Vegas, on the west side of Vegas. I went to Western. And um, 
and and there were gangs in this school, and there were dudes that uh that I really looked up to, like they had you know they were like running these gangs, and I remember the first time I did meth, it wasn't it's not like I was going to say no to the meth if it was just meth there. Somebody was like, hey, I want to do meth, I'm like no. But one of the dudes that was in, you know, one of the, one of the big homies was doing meth. And so I wasn't, if I said no, I was saying no to the group, you know? So how old were you when you first tried meth? I was a 14. 14 when you first tried meth? Meth. Say so I would have thought you would have started with something more tame, like a wine cooler. No, or no, something. no, no. The first one was, was, was actually a wine cooler. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> Yeah, that's that. Yeah, my first one was a wine cooler. Okay, so how old are you when you drink the wine cooler? I was 11. Oh my God. Yeah. 11 years old. Yeah, <sighs> it, was, uh, it was my babysitter. She wanted to shut us up so that she could go hang out with the guy across the street. So. Grant, this is horrible. And we thought it was great. We're like, we love Tammy. Mom, can you have Tammy babysit us again? <laughs> Your laugh is infectious. So I'm laughing along with you, but this is obviously a horrible story. Where were your mom and dad? Was your mom a single mom? My mom was, a, she was married to my dad, but my dad was very abusive. He like came and left and came and left and came and left. And so she was pretty much like on her own, you know, and my dad was never really a dad. He was a scary, scary person, um, you know. Uh, to get too much, but he was wasn't a good guy, and he would like he would beat on us, me and my brother, and then um, and then when my mom would try to help us, he would kick her ass, and then you know he, he would just leave, you wouldn't see him for six months, and he'd come back. My mom couldn't get on welfare because my dad wouldn't divorce her because you know, and there was this the church, they held this, they they held uh, the afterlife over her head, right? So they used this. I was I was raised up Mormon and um Oh wow, how many kids in your family? There's eight in my family. Seven boys, one girl. It's a lot of kids for any parent. Yeah. And um and so they there was this idea that, you know, I remember she would go to the county and she told us, right? She would go to the, the bishop or whatever and they would say she'd tell them about like the abuse and the cheating and the and you know the, the coming and going and the drinking and all this stuff. And they're like, Listen, we know he's not doing right right now, but um and she'd say that she wants to leave him. And they're like, listen, you can divorce him here, right? But you guys are sealed in the temple, which means you're sealed in the hereafter. So even if you divorce him here, you're going to be with him in the afterlife. So you should probably just do the best you can to make it work out. And my dad leveraged that fear. You know, he leveraged that fear in my mom. Um, hmm. Where are you in the birth order? I'm the third. There's uh, two boys, TJ, Thomas, Joseph, me, and then my sister. And my, me and my sister were playmates. And then there's four. How did your sister turn Sisters, out? Uh, no, I'm joking. She's my, <laughs> hey, she's, <laughs> she, was, she ended up being, uh, she was like my homie. Me and her were playmates. So I was in, uh, I was in ballet with her, which means that I was called a, my, you know, they, they called me gay. They called me a girl. I got picked on a lot up until I was 11. And then, um, and then when I was 11, I was, I was molested uh, by, a, by a guy in the church. And I'm not, this isn't a reflection of the Mormon church. This isn't, and I, I just want to, like, this isn't a reflection of the Mormon church. I just think that it, things happen. 
but it was somebody in the church. My mom put me in these piano lessons and he was the organist for uh, the, the tabernacle choir at one time. And he was like really respected. Grant, I'm so sorry. Yeah. She put me in piano classes with him and I I'll do whatever. Like if my mom wanted to put me in, like they put me in ballet, I'll, I'll do ballet. I'll do whatever. I like really wanted to be close with my mom, you know, because there's eight kids she's taking care of. So you want to like, want to do whatever, you know, if she could have put me in ice skate, ice skate, I would have done whatever. And, uh, so they put me in piano lessons and this guy for a summer um, going into the sixth grade was, uh, was molesting me. So they say genetics loads the gun and trauma pulls the trigger. Is this the trauma that you think maybe led to your substance use disorder? Well, it wasn't just that. It was like what happened after, because, you know, when you're a kid uh, and you, you just feel, feel so powerless and you feel so stupid, you know, and you're holding, you're trying to keep this secret because my family, and back then, like it wasn't, it, the Mormons weren't, and most religions, right, aren't okay with gays in the family. And uh, when I was, I think I was five or six years old, my aunt came out of the closet and my family, um, they, they disowned her. Then you never saw Aunt Kathy again. And it was because she was gay. And, and, um, and I'll never forget the day that like, they told us my mom sat us all down and she's like crying. She's like, you guys, I have terrible news. We're like, and we're kids. And we're like, no, she's crying. We're crying. We're like what? And she's like, your aunt Kathy is a lesbian. And we're like, whoa, what's a lesbian. And then, uh, you know, and then it turns out that, you know, my dad's standing behind my mom. He's like, your aunt's a faggot. And we're like, what is, we didn't even know. What does that mean? You know, and uh, and it turns out that she likes the same sex. So my aunt is gay, and then you never see her again. You know, we don't see her, and uh, and so that's what my family does to gays. And then later, when I was uh, eleven and I got molested, what this guy is having me do would make me gay, right? And so I thought that if I told them that, yeah, you know, that they would kick me out of the family. And so you have to weigh it out. Uh, and so when I did tell my mom, and my mom always told us, she was like, if anybody ever touches you in a weird way or makes you do anything, uh, you know, then you, you, you got to tell an adult. You got to tell us. But I didn't want to tell them because I know what you guys do to gay people. What this guy's doing to me would make me, kind of, you know, would make me gay. So I thought I was really confused. And, uh, but what they did was instead of like calling the police, they called the church and they ended up moving this guy, you know, to further out you know well i'm so sorry that's awful there's really no words for that um you know what's interesting is that like that when that happened that's when you like can't i don't trust these guys you know that was i mean excuse my language that's when you're like fuck you fuck you fuck you i'm done you know and then you stop trusting churches you stop trusting um parents or teachers you stop, i'm i'm not fucking you none of you you know I was mad. I was a mad little kid. I was angry. I was scared. I was pissed. But I was more, I was scared, but I would, but now you got to kill me. Do you know what I mean? Of course. Absolutely. That was it. So when, when that happened, I, that's when I turned, you know, it's just like, fuck everybody, you know? And, and then, and then that, that's it. And that's where you start moving into, you know, I don't want to, I'm not going to learn from any teachers. I'll learn from that guy. Cause he's, he, he protects me. You don't, you know? When I say that guy, I mean like the gangs or the groups or the squads, you know, 
Yeah. So in between the wine cooler and the meth, are there any intermediate substances, I, substance I use? Before I didn't like weed. There would always, you'd always be drinking. We would drink all the time. We drank a lot. That was it. We would, you know, the squad, we were always drinking. And uh, when it was there, I tried weed. I didn't like it. And then, but meth was different. You know, meth was more my speed. No pun intended, but yeah, that was, but yeah, I was, meth was it. And, uh, and alcohol. And then I, you know, you went through little phases, you go through every phase. Of, you, know, you go into your cocaine phase, you get into your, uh, you know, and then I got into the clubs, just working in the clubs and we're doing like all the ketamine, all the uh, GHB, the ketamine, GHB, DMT, ecstasy, all the, you know, all, all the club drugs. And then I'm going to, I have a kid, I have a son and I'm like, dude, I'm changing my life. But uh, I wasn't ready. You know, I hadn't, I'm not, I wasn't emotionally stable yet. When things would get weird, I would, I started to do pills. I started to do uh, boxies. I started to do boxies. I was snorting them. And then I started to ch- trade them for meth. And then I was mixing them with meth. And then eventually, you know, you lose your job. I did, uh, lost my wife and kids. And then tried to get them back. And then this time, by this time, I'm already... I'm already uh, pretty deep into injecting heroin. I mean, that's the natural progression, right? Pills to heroin. You know, we were also doing fentanyl back then. It was a lot harder to get a hold of. But uh, So you were intentionally doing fentanyl? Were you seeking out fentanyl? Because my understanding is kids aren't seeking it out, really. They're just getting it. I mean, of course, there are some hardcore users out there seeking it out, but you were seeking it out. Like the thing with uh, fentanyl, and I remember when it first came out, or not when it first came out, but when it was like in everything. And uh, they're like, you know, somebody asked me, they're like, well, if you were still using and people were overdosing around you because their dope had fentanyl in it, they didn't see it in there, would that make you stop using? I'm like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I wouldn't stop using. Matter of fact, when people start overdosing, cells go up higher because it means you got some real potent shit. That's what you want. You want the potent shit. People start dying cells increase that's it's always been like that is that because at that point you're just a full-blown addict who's chasing a high and you don't care if you die chasing it because by no. then your brain has been hijacked by drugs Man, when i was on the streets like i uh, first of all just think about dope sick dope sick any withdrawal from from an opioid is the worst pain physical, psychological, emotional pain that you'll ever feel in your life. And it- Talk about that because I think a lot of our listeners, myself included, don't know what it's like to be, go through withdrawal. So, so initially you're going to, you get the cold sweats and, and you'll get diarrhea. You'll puke. You can't eat nothing. That's the physical, your bones. I want you to visualize if you, your bones trying to kick outside of your skin. Your bones are trying to push out of your skin. You can't sit still. It's just, you, you can't, like you're panicking. You're in a panic because your legs won't stop kicking or your hands won't stop shaking and you're sweating and you just feel so gross and you're, and you're shitting yourself and you're puking. It is the worst. And then even if you make it past that, it's going to be a couple days of that. But when you make it past that, then you still have this emotional, like your body's not releasing any endorphins anymore, any dopamine, just... It's, it's a, it's a 
It's a psychological and an emotional pain unlike any other. And so this is why we don't, we don't do shit when we're high, right? When you're high, you're high, right? When we do the worst is when we're, when we're not high, when we're coming down, when, we're, when we need to get well. And, right? and that's the term that we use, right? Because now I'm sick. So I need to get well. And when you say I need to get well, not say I need to get high, then shit changes. So we've changed the language around it. So like you're feeling the worst pain you ever felt. You need to get well. And there's a chance that you getting well could kill you. You'll roll the dice because it's either way we're stopping the pain. It is, you know, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. But then the other side of the coin you said is you're chasing this high and so you're watching people drop dead of fentanyl, um, but you want the fentanyl. The thing is, yeah, so you, you just get well. But you also have to look at it like when, when you're using uh, opioids, right, you become a master of overdose. Yes, yeah, so you're taking it right to the edge of death. And because your brain's been hijacked by addiction, you're willing to do that. Oh, yeah. No, you, the idea is to take it as far. <laughs> like, if this is death, right, this is, this is normal. And this is death. You want to be right here. Yeah. Yeah. But I, what, what's the worst that can happen? I die. And so you stop giving a fuck about death. And so you're doing shit that doesn't really like, that uh, isn't the best for you because the idea that you're afraid of death will stop you from doing some things. But if you're like, if I'm living a lifestyle that the risk assessment is dead or prison, well then fuck it. Let's go. You know? And, uh, and so like, I remember when I was on the streets, I wasn't doing about it. I wasn't doing good stuff. It was, uh, you know, you got a $150 a day habit and you don't have any source of income. You might have to rob someone. You know, you might have to do some stuff. You might have to try to bend the rule, not just bend them. You're going to have to break some shit, you know? And, uh, and so like, I remember like praying that when I was on the streets, something would happen like a puppy. And this is going to sound nuts, but like a puppy would run out into the road or a kid would run out into the street and I would give my life saving this kid so that I had a chance to like at least die admirably. You know, I know I'm gonna die. So what you know, and you're like the, the idea was that like if I am gonna die, then man, I hope somebody tries to rob an old lady around me so that I can save her and get shot and get shot and die that way instead of dying the way I am already dying. You know? How do you end up on the road to recovery? Do you hit a rock bottom? People talk about a rock bottom. So there was that. There's nine years where it was really bad, uh, where I wasn't doing really adulting really well. And, uh, but it was on and off and I was going through the cycle, right? You know, you go to jail, you get cleaned up, you, you get released to a sober living house or some sort of a program and then you get clean. And then I was, I was really good at climbing fast, right? I'm a likable guy. I'm a go-getter. But once I get to a certain point, um, I would always, it would always turn around, right? I would, I would end up using again. Once you give me a $20 bill. Actually, it wasn't maybe a few weeks, $20 bills, but like, but when, you know, and I would just cycle through the thing, cycle, cycle. And then eventually, you know, losing job became your identity. You don't process or you don't like look into why I lost my job. That becomes who I am. So I'm like, I'm accepting that I'm just always going to lose job. And I'm accepting that I'm always going to be sleeping on someone else's couch. And then, you know, you, then you, uh, then you sleep on the streets enough, right? Like, you know, you find a little pocket on the side of the building where you can crash for a little bit or you uh i would there's i, I there's sometimes i would go to like car to sleep under the cars um and that you know um but uh 
but you you do this enough and that's just that's just who you are and uh so for the last three years of being an addict i just had adapted to that just street you know and squat uh empty houses and stuff like that everyone was, it was vegas too the market was terrible you can find a lot of houses squatting right i remember that the mortgage crash the great recession and Vegas had done all this building in anticipation of all these people moving there. There were these brand new houses that were just sitting empty. Mm, yeah, well, my, yeah. So it was the, the aftermath of 2008. So it was like 2011 was when, it, yeah, it was when I was the worst. We would, I mean, we would set up trap houses all over. We'd steal power from the neighbors, you know, you know and um, and that was it, right? The bank would take the house, the people would get evicted, and then uh, and then nobody's managing this house; it's just sitting there. And so, you know, you go to you walk down the street, you'll see a house that has overgrown grass and bushes, you know, bushes and you got a spot, you know. So when, if ever, do you hit, quote unquote, rock bottom? Rock bottoms are interesting because you can keep finding new ones, right? Right. When you're like, oh, my worst. And then you're like, you shuffle a little more. You're like, oh, that's not my worst. You know, and you're like, you can always get worse. And for me, it was, I, I got, I was facing five to seven and I like, that's not gonna get me like get beaten beat me up fucking me up like you know taking beat downs getting jumped getting stabbed like that shit's not gonna stop me like you gotta what are you gonna do you know that's not gonna stop me that was part of the gig um going to prison facing prison isn't gonna stop me because that's part of the risk assessment i already knew that it's an option you know so if, if dying's an option and facing prison is a, a part of the risk assessment right then what's a rock bottom, you know? And so, um, and I wasn't fathering my kids. I, and there are situations where I almost got my own kids killed because I was an irresponsible drug addict. And so it's none of that stuff. It was, I got locked up. I was facing five to seven. I'm getting ready to do my time and I'll do time good. I'm tough and I politic well, I'll do well, you know? And, uh, and so I'm prepared to go to prison. And then my granny, and this is what's, my granny wrote me a book, or not, she didn't write me a book, she wrote me a letter, she wrote me a letter that, because uh, I asked her to put money on my, on my books, right, to put money on my, com- so, so I can get commissary, I wrote my granny a letter, you know, saying, you know, telling I'm going to need, you know, maybe a hundred bucks this month, or a hundred bucks a month, just so I can get my basic needs met, and, uh, and she, uh, she wrote me a letter back, saying that she's not going to send me any money, she's not going to support this lifestyle anymore, and, because uh, my granny used to, she would, she would get me hotel rooms every once in a while. Anytime I asked her for money when I was on the streets, I'd get a 20 from her here, 40 from her here. You know, maybe every, every couple of weeks I'd hit her up for 80, you know, and my granny would always, whatever story I told her, she believed it because she, I, I, me and my granny were close. She raised, she kind of raised me up for a few years. I was homeless when I was 14. And then. Whoa. Homeless at 14. Yeah. My, my dad just left town. Me and my brother left moved out of my mom's house and then moved in with my dad. And then that summer uh, we went, me and JD went to my friend Marty's house and we hung out there for a weekend. And when we came back, he had packed everything up and left, moved. So what was the story with your dad? You said he was a drinker. Was this a substance abuse issue? Was he just a sociopath? What, what's your armchair psychology or maybe a therapist has talked to you about? Well, there's, there's definitely something wrong with him. I, I still don't even communicate with him. Like people say, you should, re, you know, re, you know, reunify your relationships, but I don't, I don't. Fuck. 
there's definitely something wrong. But he left, and um, and so me, my brother, we used to stay in my grandpa's shop yard. My grandpa owned a, an a electrical company, and so we would stay with our friends when we could. But we were like kind of the bad kids. So the house is the house I was raised up in. My grandpa owned the house. He owned the property. And behind the house was my grandpa's shop yard that he ran his electrical company out of. So we were raised up in a house that was on the shop yard that my grandpa ran his company out of. And um, so when my dad left, he was he was living in the house. It's my grandpa's house. When my dad left, he um, he chained the, the gates. I didn't tell my grandpa and we didn't really say anything to them. Um, and I, I wonder if it's because you felt protective of your dad. You know, you were a little kid. Yeah. And I didn't, and you kind of, even though your dad does that shit, we didn't want him to get in trouble. Now you're like, ah, fuck that guy. But like back then, like, I just, you don't want your dad to get in trouble. You sure? Like maybe it was my fault. And so. And at this point, your brother was how old? You're 14. He's 15. He's one year old. And so, so we, um, we would sleep in the trucks in the, my grandpa's work trucks at night. And, um, and my grandpa and my brother ended up moving in with his girlfriend. He got a girlfriend. So my brother ended up moving in with his girlfriend. So and then, anyways, my uncles would come into work and they would wake me up and they would bring me food and, you know, and, and, and that it, it, my uncles were cool. And then finally my granny found out my granny and grandpa found out about it and they were like uh so i moved in with my granny and they were they were good to me how long did you live with your grandparents it was, I, I lived with her for about a, a year and a couple and then uh yeah so i lived with my granny so me and my granny were close me and my grandpa were close um but he's passed away by this time so my granny would always um give me a hotel room you know once in a while she would send my kids birthday cards when i would forget she would sign my name she was, she was a good granny, but she, uh, she told me she's done with me. So she wrote, you know, wrote a letter that, you know, that she's not going to support me anymore. And, uh, cause she knew that I was a drug addict. Finally, she finally learned. <laughs> and, uh, so that was when I was 16 and I moved out later and went through, moved through whatever I moved through. I'm saying when I'm in jail, I wrote her a letter saying, can you put money on my books? Uh, maybe probably more enabling me, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but so she told me, she wrote me a letter and said that she's not going to support my lifestyle anymore, but she will send me books. And I was like, screw you, granny, you know, like, uh, what am I going to do with books? And so I, I wrote her that letter and was like, you know, you're just like mom and dad. I'm trying to shame her into like sending me money, but, um, but she didn't, she sent me a letter again saying that she does love me. She understands why I'm mad, but she, you know, if, if, if there's anything other than money, like books or magazines or whatever that I want, she'll send them to me. And so, um, for two weeks, I was real upset about that. And, uh, and, but, um, but then what happened was I, uh, I was trying to be brief with this, but I, I found a witchcraft book, a book on wicked, a, a wicked book. Right. And, uh, and I was re- I was going to read it to make fun of it later. Um, cause it seemed funny to me and I'm like, ah, oh, this is great. I'm going to learn how to cast some spells on some people, you know? And, uh, but there was a part in there that was about, uh, being grounded in mindfulness and it, and I read it and I followed the instructions one night. I, uh, waited for everybody to go to sleep and then I put the book in front of me and I did what it 
told me to do, you know, sit down straight with your hands on your lap and, you know, you know, with your spine straight, visualize that your, your feet, visualize yourself as a tree and your feet are planting roots into the ground. And, and I'm going through this, I'm reading it, close my mind and reading it. And then it says to visualize that your, your arms are the branches, you know, feel your branches and feel the leaves, the wind running through your leaves. I visualize this, I did it. And then I'll breathe in, you know, for four seconds and hold it for four and release. And I did everything it told me to do. And then I, I can feel me cry. I started crying from breathing, visualizing myself as a tree. And I'm like, what the fuck? And, and, um, and so I, I did it again. I did it again. Every time I did it, I got a weird energy. Like I, I felt like it felt good, you know? And so I wrote my granny a letter. It's like, Hey, can you please send me books about being mindful um, or, or maybe breathing or yoga or, you know, and so uh, she started sending me books about, you know, mindfulness and, and universal law. And, and, um, and I just started reading, reading, exercising, reading. I changed my schedule to where I'm not like, I didn't, I didn't want to, I was in a dorm room. So there's like, it, it's like a dorm room setting. And so you have your own like little cubicle. It's a four foot pony, you know, brick pony walls. And there's 280 guys in there and they're all going to prison. And that's, we're just waiting to go to prison. Right. And, um, and I, um, and I didn't want to be like, I didn't, I didn't want to be part of that group anymore. I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to, so I would, when they were up, I was sleeping. And then when they were sleeping, I was up reading and doing push-ups, And I had the, I learned differently, right? I can't, I would read a chapter in a book and not remember what the fuck I just read. And I would go read it again and not remember any of it. And I'm like, what? And so I had to, I had to learn how to learn again. I had to like, I would read a sentence and write it down, read a sentence and write it down. I don't like, that's how I would remember things. And I do the same thing. Now I do audio books every morning. I do an audio book and I have my notes open so that I can like write down the things and remember the things because just how my, my head is, I have a, you know, some of us have different brains, you know? And so so I would have to remember stuff. So I remember things differently. So I would plagiarize these freaking books. So I would remember them and, uh, and, and I would exercise and just, and that's, and I did, I ended up catching another charge when I was in there that, uh, and they offered uh, rehab and drug court as a sentence. So I, I took it and then I went to, was there for nine months, went to rehab for three months and then came out. When I came out, I went to jail one more time because I did. I went on one more hot one. The last time I used was February 28th. Or I'm sorry, December 28th, uh, 2014. Tell us about the recovery program that works for you. Because you've been so strong on your recovery for so long. What is your method? Is it 12 steps? Is it the mindfulness that you learned when you were locked up? From these, uh, that started with these books that your grandmother so kindly was sending you. What what is your recovery method? I uh, I, I and you know, and I don't know. I am not a group person. I don't like that. It's not my gig. I um, I did go to twelve steps, and I but I told my mentor that like that if that's the only way to recover, I don't know if I'll do well. I have to, I need something else. And so 
I just had a bunch of mentors. Uh, I asked them, you know, I would ask questions, you know, and one of them got me into Kabbalah. I went to Kabbalah for a little while. I was doing this uh, Jewish mysticism, you know, I, and then there you're also meditating, you're learning about the cosmos and that, and uh, it's real spiritual. And then I, I went to, uh, this is going to sound crazy, but, uh, but I went to the Church of Scientology and uh, I studied Dianetics. That you know the fundamentals of thinking and that and and of course I didn't join the church it's not my gig I don't join groups but I'm going to learn as much as I wait didn't they try to recruit you oh well they tried I mean that's their gig right you know they they definitely tried but there's I learned so much and that's the thing is like people we 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 we, you can there's good there's some good in, in a lot of groups you just got to be able to pull it out with being without being pulled in, you know? And, and then I, and then, and then from there I started doing my own like little homework. I would, I was uh, learning about philosophy and then I started, uh, and of course I'm reading during this time too, but then I started being specific on what I wanted to learn and what I wanted to read. And I would set up my own regimen. And I think that part of it too is working in recovery. I was always working in recovery, you know, and always learning and learning. And so that's, that was part of my gig. So just being in the gym, staying healthy, um, and learning. I fill my schedule up and I, and if there's any gray areas in the schedule, fill it with meaningful things. You know, there's not going to be a gray area. I mean, in, in, in my schedule, I learned that early on, just to stay purposeful, meaningful, you know, every morning I, 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 I do 40, 30 minutes to 45 minutes of an audio book. Um, I always, set up some sort of challenge in my, uh, you know, so the, at, like at first I was, I was just lifting weights and I became a bodybuilder. So I joined, uh, you know, I went to a competition of bodybuilding. Now I, um, I'm, I'm boxing now. Right. Because you and I have talked on the phone before. And I remember asking you in one of our conversations, how did you get into competitive boxing? And you said, it, it wasn't enough for you to just get really physically fit that you needed something more to challenge yourself. And you figured what better way than spar with an opponent in the boxing ring and go into competitive boxing. I think it's important that you like, uh, you, you do something that scares you or something that challenges you. Like if I'm working out regular, I'm just going to work out and just become a thing. If I know that somebody that I have a fight coming up and that somebody could potentially beat me up. I'm going to train <laughs> like I, like, like somebody's coming for me. And I do, I train like someone's coming for me. And I think that's the idea is you always, you have to like, cause people are coming, for you, you know, the jackals are coming. So I, and I, and I, I have that mindset. Like when I, when I work out, I have it when I'm, when I, when I'm working, I have it when I'm out, you know, creating programs. I'm always like, you, you, you got to act as if, because, and I'm not going to say it's my addiction, but an addiction, right? Because it could be mine. It's not now. I don't, I, I'm not, I don't prescribe to that. Like, I'm not an addict. I'm not, I'm not a drug addict. But I could be. I'm not fucking careful. I got to stay ahead of it, you know? And, uh, and I got to outwork it. And that's my theory. I, I have a, I read once uh, from the Dalai Lama. He says, you're not entitled to the fruits of your labor. The only thing you're entitled to is your labor. And for so long, I thought that people owed me shit. Nobody owes you anything. You're not, you don't, you, you're not entitled to the fruits. 
The only thing you're entitled to is the labor. So if, if all I'm entitled to is the work, then I'm going to work my ass off. And everything that comes is a gift. And the shit will come, just like the gym. You go to the gym and you start lifting, you don't even have to think about it. Your body's a byproduct. You know? I love that messaging. I think it's so important for any adult in recovery or not to remember that life is really hard. And like you said, you have to stay ahead of things. And that dovetails in with the, I know you do motivational speaking at schools with kids. And of course you tailor your message to them, but it's a very similar message about grit and resilience. And I love that messaging. I think it's so important, especially in today's day and age, especially with kids, because it seems like it's all about don't be uncomfortable in safe spaces. But tell me about this uh, Karma Box project that I know you're also you're involved in so many things. You're involved in this project called Karma Box, and I've seen you on news programs talking about that. Tell us about how you got started in that and what that is. I was working at a methadone clinic and created a program for volunteering to get guys that are guys and gals, anybody that's in, in the, in the program to get them out into uh, back into the community. I think it's like we were talking about earlier. I think you have to give back. You have to give, we've done damage. We've done a lot of damage, especially if you were an addict and especially if, you know, any, anytime you're addict or you're hurting somebody, that's it. You don't get to go to a fucking trailer in the forest and smoke meth and not hurt somebody because somebody loves you, you know? And so we, we owe it to give back. It's part of our gig. And so I set up a program to where we're volunteering in the community and, uh, and to make it, and then we, we started building like little library boxes and then we would place them somewhere and paint it and then uh, have folks put non-perishable foods, hygiene items, stuff like that for, uh, you know, people that are homeless or folks, you know, you don't have to, homeless but that's usually what it is you know that comes by but if anybody in need that walks by this box whatever's in it is yours and if you have something to give put a granola bar in it put a water in it put some socks in there you know a pair of socks whatever and so but that the first box was placed in september 2018 in um carson city out here in nevada and then uh we put another one right after that reno we put another one and another one, and now we have uh, 60 boxes in northern Nevada just that are, you know, folks. I don't know how to build boxes. Terrible. Um, but you get people that – get. I build the, 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 the culture, right? We, we, we push the culture. We cheerlead for the culture of giving and helping. And, uh, and so it, uh, they build a box, get an artist to paint the box, and uh, get a group to fill it. And people will do it. And it uh, – now we have 60 of them around Northern Nevada. And then from that, uh, during the pandemic, uh, of course, everybody's homeless issue increased, right? There was this shelter in place, you know, mandate from the CDC that says, you know, can't, you can't move camps. And the thing with moving camps is that it's necessary. You have to can't let a camp stay in one place for too long if it's not regulated because the first responder calls because of the amount of trash and debris because of the 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 culture in these camps right aren't conducive for like let's just say that a lot of people will come out 
Um, a lot of advocates will come out. And they, here's the great, and they would do it right when it was right when the CDC was uh, lifted that. You had advocacy groups that are like, "Don't sweep this camp! Don't sweep this camp!" Have you been in this camp? Do you know about play to stay? Do you know that like most women don't have tents? So in order for them to have a tent, they'll have to exchange a sexual favor to get in that tent. Right? You don't want these camps to grow too big. In um, just in uh, in one month at the at the, the, the camp that we were working in, you had ninety uh, police calls. Ninety police calls, in one month. Ninety, right? You had a fire every day, at least one fire every day. And when the fire department comes, the ambulance has to come. It's whoever gets there first. And these aren't just heating fires. These are conflict resolution fires. What are conflict resolution fires? Conflict resolution fires. So if you steal my bike, I'm burning your shit down. You take my girl, I'm burning your shit down. We got some beef, homie. You owe me money. I'm burning your shit down. And, and this, this doesn't mean that these are bad people, but this is the culture that it is on the streets when it's not regulated. And the only rules, um, not to, but because every group has rules, but but um, but this it, it's specific on the streets, especially when it's when there's a lot of uh, you know drug interaction and drug and mental illness, right? Like there's so many things that that point to that you shouldn't just let this camp stay here. Uh, the average American produces five to seven pounds of trash a day in a homeless camp. They produce 40 pounds of trash per day, upwards of 40 pounds of trash. There's a disposable lifestyle, right? Paper plates, you know, um, cans, whatever. There's a disposable lifestyle. We're not really washing dishes. Um, Our clothes, we're not washing our clothes. So like new clothes comes in. And part of it is that the people is the helpers. The helpers bring the things every day in this camp. You would have. Five to 15 churches would come out, and maybe not churches, maybe it's just groups, but people, and, they're, and they mean well. They mean well. They want to help. But, they, but it's not a well thought out. It's not what we would call second order thinking, right? They're just thinking, like if you and I were, if we were a bike factory, right? Um, we're building a bike, but the people that are just putting bolts on are assuming that they're building the bike. You know, like it's, there's more than just putting the bolt on. Without, so it's not understanding the bigger picture. So they, they, they would, a lot of the groups, and it's, and they mean well again, but it's like there's, we lack second order thinking. So what's the consequence of the consequence? And, um, and they would just bring things out. Now, now if you're in a sense of poverty, right, you're going to take everything. Why is that? Because when you're on the streets, everything is currency. Shoes, used shoes, hats. You think one guy, if you tell him, hey, take whatever you want, that he's only going to take one jacket if that's all he needs? No, he's going to take seven and he's going to barter the rest because that is the economy on the streets. So you're not giving people what you need. You're actually contributing to folks losing a psychological drive, you know, and, 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 and staying where they're at. Why would anybody leave, you know? And it costs, like, we were pulling 80, 80 yards of trash a week out of one camp, you know, and that's, a, that's, a, it's, it's a lot. And it's because we, we also help in the wrong way. So look, if you look at it like this, like that's the, that is where 
harm reduction. So harm reduction would be somebody's, uh, somebody's hungry. So what do you do when somebody's hungry, right? You can, and each level takes a little bit more, right? So first level of someone being hungry, you just give them the food. A little more, and every and the higher level you go, the more you're actually helping them. Anyways, we we started working out in the camp, and I started a non I turned it into a nonprofit, and we started cleaning up trash in the camp and doing outreach in the camps, and we started incentivizing guys to help us clean up. So we were giving gift cards to clean up the trash, and then that's when we identified how much trash was being made, and and um and then that's you know then from there we developed a another outreach program. So that was our workforce program. And we did another outreach program. And then we built a, with a, the help of Washoe County out here, we, uh, we, we built a safe camp and then ended up putting the, you know, the County got some, uh, out of Portland, got, uh, got these mod pods that we, that we use. And so we live, we operate a safe camp where the folks are living in mod pods and it's, we're housing focused, so we're the we're no barrier, right? You don't have to be clean. You don't have to, and there's, you don't you don't uh, doesn't matter what record you have. It doesn't you have animals, whatever. Um, but you have to have a plan. You have to agree to work on your housing plan. And so the housing plan is loops, right? Somebody comes in, you're like, hey, what do you what's your housing plan? You're like, I want to live in a mansion. All right. Now we have somewhere to work on. You know, now we got something to work on. Whether it's realistic or not, that's not the point. Now we have something to work on. We got you to agree to work, right? And so part of the gig is that you have to make your appointments. You don't have to be sober. So how does somebody try to get into one of these camps? How do they get in? Um, usually they start out with, with documentation, right? Can we, do you have an ID? Do you get SSI? Are you employable? You know, so it's usually identification documents uh, that. And then from there, we identify, like, are you eligible for benefits? Now, if you're eligible for benefits, um, most folks at some point in their, in their the road to homelessness or in homelessness have, have gotten some sort of benefits from a program, right? So it's usually something that you just have them, you know, that you reapply for and they, they send it to you pretty quick. Now, if they don't have them, um, then that takes a little bit longer, but that's fine. Now, um, and then once you once we get to a place where they have an income, a stable income, then we start looking at subsidized housing through emergency housing vouchers, or um, or, or you, you know you, you, the, the voucher which will you know pay for it all together, or you just or you could subsidize housing depending on what their situation is. The, the idea is that this is not a destination, and that's where we run into problems. Is Folks have turned an emergency shelter type situation into a lifestyle. And this is not the destination. There are places I've visited safe camps that people have been there for eight years, 12 years, 14 years. It's a terrible idea because you stop. Dude, you stop the flow because you're still homeless. You're still homeless and people are still paying for you. The idea is that we take these folks who who are, could potentially be assets. If you... Meet a person where they're at. You leave them there. It's the, that's what they say. Don't do not succumb to the soft to the soft bigotry of low expectations. And if we if we do that, then we're keeping people sick. Like the idea is to nudge people to their full potential. So we'll get like if, if we like right out of the gate. That's our expectation. This isn't a 
this isn't your, your you know your, your your destination this is a platform you come here we're going to learn we're, there's going to be a cultural shift right because while you're living here you're going to have to like keep that pod clean the pod isn't going to turn into to what your tent looked like used to look like you know i can look at somebody's tent and tell you what their apartment's going to look like you don't do that you don't go straight from a tent to an apartment there has to be a transition where there's some uh cultural adjustment you know and a social adjustment too we have to learn that if i don't like carl that's in the pod next to me i don't just get to move i have to learn how to live with carl carl's a dick carl plays his music loud how can i communicate with carl you know and, and, and you, and this is real life shit. Like if I get my own apartment, I don't like my neighbor. I don't get to bully him and tell him to leave or I'm going to kick his ass. It's not real, you know? And so we have to set up a, a, a model that's going to match the model we want them to live, in, you know, or survive in, or do well in, or else in three months, they'll be back to the street inventory and we'll have to do it again. And that's, and that's what we do. So if, yeah, so if somebody uh, isn't making their appointments and they're not following through with the with the program, then then we do ask them to leave or we'll, we we reset because maybe maybe you need a higher level of care than we can provide right now. Maybe you're not ready. So we give folks 30 days to reapply, and they can keep coming back, keep coming back, and that's it, right? We also have to hold space for folks to to fall down, to make mistakes, and you know, a lot of times we've had people cycle back where the second or third time they came back, crushed it, crushed it. Do you know? And, and you, you don't get to determine when somebody's, uh, somebody's ready. That's not on us. We just have to be, we have to be ready. We have to be consistent. So if you want to, and that's it too. Like we don't push anybody to get clean because um, you can't in this program. But folks have managed to do it themselves when you create another alternative other than what they're used to, you know, if all you do all day is hustle to get, to get dope, right. Or hustle to get dope and hustle to get food or whatever. And we put you in a place where you're safe. You don't have to look over your shoulder. You don't have to, uh, you don't have to protect yourself, you know, um, and, it, and you, you know, we get in a spot where we're actually working. Like some of the folks will come and work with me for gift cards. You can, you can remedy out of that, right? You can work your way out, but we have to create a different alternative. Have you ever housed somebody who's still actively Percentage. using? Um, some folks um, will move into housing, still actively using. Um, and that does present a, a problem. Um, so far, we haven't experienced anybody that maybe a few have come back, but do I agree with that model? Um, no. Um, is it getting folks off the streets? Yeah. Have they learned? So there's, and there's the like, so I don't determine that model. We can't, because we can't make them get clean. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of conflicting ideas. So for example, um, it, do you get someone off the streets? Yeah. Are they going to be back on the streets because of this behavior? Probably. Um, can you make them get clean right now? No. So, so what you do is you like in this end, you, you have, they have supports, right? They have supports that help make sure that your bills are getting paid. Make sure that you're not bringing people into the apartment, make sure, or 
that you're not like thrashing the apartment or throwing parties there or whatever to protect the the inventory you know that because you know if you if every time we put somebody in your apartment complex and we thrash the apartment complex then we won't have an inventory to use anymore they're not going to let us send folks there so there is a support um does it work every time no so am i understanding you correctly that the way washoe county works is they don't mandate that you get abstinent from all substances to get in the pod and they also don't mandate that you're abstinent from all substances to get housing however there are parameters in place and they make sure you're following certain rules to stay in the pods and to get housing and if you're not you can be kicked out of these pods and you can be prevented from moving on to housing of course if you're kicked out of the program oh yeah so that what they do is they have like a liaison that works between and this is good Uh, this is good i i like the idea of having a liaison that make sure that they're not thrashing the place, that make sure that they're keeping the place clean. They check in on them once a week, a couple times a week, depending on the person's abilities. This is good. If it was up to me, everybody would be clean. Um, but it's, and so, um, and, and, and. So are you saying if it were up to you, everybody would be abstinent from substances to get into the pods and certainly to get into housing, but Washoe County runs this program. So it's not up to you. I would. Um, I am not the, like, I think there needs to be, like, I really like the, the mod pod model where people get their own little pods. It doesn't, it's not much more expensive than the, than the uh, regular shelter model, but it gives folks a place to, it minimizes all theft, it minimizes um, conflict, right? Because you actually have a place to get away from people. You know, it also is, there's a grooming period for how to, how do you treat your, 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 your spot, keeping your area clean. Grooming's a weird word now, but you know what I mean? There's this conditioning, right? Where we're learning how to take care of our own stuff. Like I, I agree with that one, 100%. But I also, at the same time, have seen people that are still using, that are managing to sustain, you know? So I, the bigger picture is that like, I do, think that everybody should get you know should you're more likely to be an asset when you're not using period so our governor of oregon is talking about funding in the city of portland for these pods instead of tents and our mayor's idea is to create these encampments and let's say we have these pods i think people's biggest concern is that the set up the encampment is going to be near a school is going to be in a residential area is going to be in a place where people are trying to work and go to school and raise families and we're putting a gigantic pod situation or encampment in the middle of functional society where we've got all these people trying to work out their traumas and there's all this dysfunctioning happening within there. And then, of course, if you go around the city of Portland and you if you see, like, no barrier shelters, et cetera, there are tents and squalor and garbage all around the perimeter of all of that. So it really 
I mean, there's no way, like if you have a house on the perimeter of one of these things, you're not going to be able to sell it. I mean, it's almost like a government taking. Where are your pods in Washoe County? So that that's always like, like what we do is ours is in a uh, in an old baseball field, right? And um, and uh, we're just we're getting ready to go down there. First, it was in the parking lot, but that it that does happen. And because of the culture, right, because people are still actively using, if you say you can't use in this gate, where are they going to use? Outside of the gate, right? And so, so it, it does create a, a weird scenario. So what we do as an as a agency is we, we have our, a good neighbor policy where we, we, we're always on our streets. We don't just keep uh, inside of our gates clean. We keep the streets clean. You're not going to use. You're not going to drink on our streets. You're not going to use on our because it's actually illegal to. Yeah, see, and therein lies your problem with Portland, Oregon, where we've decriminalized drugs with Measure 110 in the state of Oregon. And in general, in Portland, it's just this free-for-all where everybody's using drugs everywhere. In my building alone, in every single alcove, there's probably somebody smoking a pill off of some foil right now. There were three as I was walking. There's usually between two and three as I'm walking in. So you can imagine what it would be like in Portland, Oregon, in one of these surrounding areas of, of one of these encampments it's not i mean the laws the geography state of nevada treats this kind of stuff very differently obviously so yeah that's one of our issues in in oregon mm-hmm. so here's the thing too like and we have to look and i'm able to talk with folks about this right is so um somebody will set up a tent on a sidewalk and i'm like hey you gotta roll up and he's like why man i don't have a place to go I'm like, you do, you, you do have a place to go. Um, it's the shelter. You don't want to go there though. And, and so this is just one. And, uh, and they're like, yeah, because they're dicks over there. And I'm like, would you agree that maybe sometimes people are assholes out here? Yes. I'm like, yeah, but I don't, I don't like the bed bugs in there. And I'm like, would you agree that there might be some bugs out here? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. There may be. And, and so, and, and then, and then we start talking about rights. What's my right to rest? It is, it is your right to rest. And sometimes if there's a time where you're tired, so tired that you can't go on anymore and you have to rest on this sidewalk, sure. But your right to rest on this sidewalk is secondary to my primary right to walk on it, right? Because that's its purpose. So we have primary, we have secondary rights, right? And your, your, your primary right to take a, a shit is secondary to my primary right to not have to step over it, do you know? And, and so we, we have to start looking at rights. I, I understand that you have to rest. I get it. But not here, not now, right? So if it, it, And so we'll have to maybe, maybe to reduce that harm, maybe you rest um, around there. Maybe we, we, we you know, you, you do it for a moment without setting up your tent. Would you agree that your tent is a kind of an eyesore and it draws attention? And would you agree that the last time you slept in a public place, something was stolen from you? Yes? Because usually when we follow, there's four constants when you're homeless. You're subject to the elements. Your shit's going to get stolen. You're going to have to physically defend yourself. And people will always ask you to move. Because you're not on, because you're always on someone else's property. And so all these things, and I can, if I can get them to agree with me on that, and these are very true things, and I can start negotiating with them. And that's what it is. We're not going to get people 
off the streets and into the shelter right away, but we can start chipping away. So if I can get you to clean up your trash today, then I might be able to get you to roll up your tent when I ask you to tomorrow. If I can get you to this, you know, then, and then, so we have to, it falls, a lot of it falls on us, but we have to have the same ideas, right? So you can't have an advocacy group coming out there and saying, you have the right to shit on this sidewalk and set up your tent and smoke dope in front of people. Like, well, no, you don't, right? Because that's just a micro solution. That's not the macro. We have to, if you help an individual, you have to look at that, that's that second order thinking, right? You have to look at like, what's the outcome of that? How are you helping? The thing is, is if we help people in the wrong way, right, people, let's just say there's three ways you can help folks. You can help them survive, which is basic needs, right, Uh, food, water, shelter, um, or like tents, right, food, tent, whatever, um, clothes. You can help them stabilize, which is I get you a job or I get you an apartment, and then you can help somebody thrive, which is you keep the job, you keep the apartment. Right. So I can give you the shit, but are you going to keep it? And that's the trick. Right. And if somebody keeps getting apartments and losing them and getting them and losing them because we haven't introduced thrive yet. So you get the stuff, you lose the stuff, get the stuff, lose the stuff. It would make more sense for somebody to be successfully homeless and addicted than it would to suck at being housed and clean. And so we're teaching folks like we're we're given the things and we're conditioning them to want to be successfully homeless because we haven't introduced thrive, you know? So we'll give you the shit, but don't teach you how to keep it. And so that we're without even trying, we condition people to stay sick and want to stay sick. So what is your success rate? Like the Washoe County pod, how, what percentage of people leave the pods and are successfully housed? Oh, at the camp we're 38%. So we've housed, and, and they're still housed. And instead of going into permanent housing from the pod, does anybody go from the pod to a different form of housing? Detox, rehab, transitional housing, sober living, group home situation? Yeah, we have, there's, we have a transitional housing um, spot where if I identify, if we identify somebody that is really thriving, they're correct, you know, they can be corrected well, they take direction well, they follow the rules, they do what they're supposed to do. Um, and if a bed, when a bed opens up in this, in this house, we call it the, the karma crib. We partner with um, the veterans guest house. They let, they let us use this bungalow. And so for people that are good candidates and good candidates would mean that they're all those things um, and they don't use, this is a sober house. Um, we move them into there and within four months, they got their own apartment. They have, uh, and this is like on average, within four months, they have their own apartment, they're working and they're stable. And, and, and so it's, it comes down to how you perform. It comes down to how you perform. Do you perform well? Do you carry your weight in a group? And, um, and, and I'm not shooting against recovery because I'm in recovery, but I believe that if you need recovery, if you stop performing well, you know, I don't drink. I don't, I'm abs, I abstain from everything because I knew that if I did, I'd be a fucking train wreck and I won't perform well. And it comes down to this and, it, and we all have to like, we have to agree on this, that um, there's a lot of really successful people out there that are active addicts. Tell me about how your personal fitness and training goals and the kinds of things that you do in regard to physical fitness, because you're 
you're incredibly fit. And when we went to this retreat in Seattle together with the other 38 people from around North America, you are one of the few people, and I exercise every day and I consider it to be a huge part of my routine, but because of the timing of when the sessions were starting and because I was, you know, just frankly not doing a great job with my sleep hygiene and hanging out with everybody into the evening um, and getting to know them better, I was not going to bed on time and I was not disciplined. I was not making time for exercise. And you were, and I noticed that you were, and I noticed that you would go to the gym, like we would be having cake after dinner or something, and you would go to the gym at nine o'clock at night. And it was so impressive how you, you were one of the few people who really stuck to that kind of routine. You were so disciplined and I admired that so much. And obviously, you know, anybody who meets you, it's very clear that you are very disciplined about your body and about what you put into the, into it and what you're doing in regard to your training regimen. So tell me about that. And then tell me how that fits in, if at all, with your recovery. Your body will happen. You don't need, like, it's, it's the gym for me and training for me and is mental hygiene. It's fucking going when you don't want to go. You know, it's pushing. It's doing some shit you don't want to do. I'm, I am, I'm, I'm a, afraid of ever becoming what I used to be. So like that, like, and then like, what can you do? Like, if I can do this now, what could I do next? And what you know? And like, it's, um, it's, it, it, it's, it's important that we whatever you challenge the fuck out of yourself, and you do, and you fail, and you do, and you fail, and you, you know, and and um, like, I, if I've failed in the last eight years you're hard pressed to fucking convince me because i'm on to the next shit so quick and i take a i take my l's as lessons and not losses i don't i i and i'm very much aggressive you know uh with with that shit so i and i think it's important and you know you don't the body will happen but it's it's focus on the brain you know get that motherfucker going and so when you say your mind does that dovetail with what we were talking about earlier that you feel like you need something competitive. You need to level up in regard to your fitness. It's not just about being fit. It's not just about being disciplined. It's not just about training or how you train or how often. Or It's really for you about mental stimulation in regard to your physical fitness. So competitions, MMA, boxing. That, is that what you're talking about? Yeah. There's a saying, and I just heard it the other day, and it's freaking brilliant it's suffer well your concept your consequence or suffer well your circumstances so like it and like you, you we 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 have to find meaning in all of our all of our adversities every like you you don't get to not have bad shit happen you don't get to not have an adverse life you don't get to do that nobody does right so you suffer well find meaning in all the suffering, because no matter what, you're going to suffer to suck or you're going to suffer to succeed. When I say suck, I don't mean like that people suck. I just mean not doing well, right? You're, does it suck to not do well? Yes or no? If it does, it also, and, 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 and you're suffering. We can agree on that. We can agree that we're suffering. But you're also like, that what's preventing us from growing is a fear of suffering. <laughs> Most people don't want to do shit because they're afraid of the suffering that comes with it. 
but you're suffering now. Yes. You know, and so we, you're going to suffer. You just right now, I get to pick how I suffer. I get to choose. Like I, I'll suffer, you know, and I'll suffer well. Make no mistake, you know, and, I, and that's if we can. And that's empowering, right? When you're with kids and you're like, guess what, dude? Like you get to control some shit. It's going to happen no matter what. So now, now you have the power to control it. Or you could just numb out and not control anything, you know, and because and, and, it's going to happen no matter what. You don't get to pick, you know, and, and when you move through that with these kids, you know, I'll be like, all right, who among you has had something very traumatic happen to them or have had something traumatic happen and, uh, and it was, you know, it, or had some bad things happen or tragic or whatever. And every kid's going to raise their hand, right? Who's experienced trauma? Every kid's going to raise their hand. But if you ask kids, um, do you have any tools to properly deal with this trauma? Nobody raises their hand. And the thing is, right, is so we should be teaching tools to deal with trauma, not avoidance of it, right? They say that the avoidance of PTS, uh, the avoidance of um, of triggers is a uh, is a uh, is a symptom of PTSD and not a cure for it. Right. You, you, you better learn how to like manage your triggers. You better, you ask them like, who's ever been anxious? And they all raise their hands. Like you should be, you should be anxious. The issue, like if you're driving a truck and the check engine light comes on, you don't sharpie it out. You lift the fucking hood. That means we need to have something we got to look at. If you're anxious, that means something. We have to find meaning in our anxiety. You have to find meaning in your depression. Are you depressed now? Yeah. Well, maybe something depressing's happening. You know, are you sad? I'm willing to say that something sad just happened. And then you get to, and they have to like manage and navigate those pathways in their brain because you're going to be sad again. Yes or no? Will you be sad again? Yes. All right. If you're going to be sad again, you better figure out how to navigate this sad or this depression or this anxiety and because it's going to happen again. And if you don't know how to look and if you can't figure out how to manage this one, you definitely won't be able to figure out how to manage the next, you know? And so we, 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 if we carry that narrative and make it like the cool thing, and I'm like, dude, no, man, you're good. Like, like I told my my son, they, you know, they got that safe room that we were talking about in his in the school, and I'm like, dude, if you ever go to that room, you better figure, like, you, you should, like, the chances are that you're going to feel unsafe. The chances are you better, you know, navigate, like, or, but the the answer is you got to think, why am I? Why are you unsafe? Maybe you should be right. Maybe you should identify that you're unsafe and maybe run towards it. The way, the way out is through, you know? Yeah. So offline, when we were chatting, you and I have chatted over the phone a number of times, but this time when we were talking over the phone, getting ready for this episode, you were talking about how your, one of your kids has a safe room at school. And you were saying that is such a terrible message to send to children and just garden variety public school a garden variety school in general this is not a school for war veterans or children of war or pow's this is just a average kid at school and what you were telling me is it was horrifying to you to learn that there was this safe room at school and that your son thought it would be an option to use and you were trying to explain look you need to learn how to cope with life and life doesn't have a safe room. And I thought that was so insightful. And I, I love it that you are talking about the message that you give 
kids generally because you do speaking tours to elementary schools, junior high schools, high schools, and you tailor your message to these children depending on the age group that you're talking to. I've, and I've seen clips of some of it on your social media accounts. And I think your message is inspiring. I think every child should hear your message. I want to get you out here to Portland and have you talk to some of these kids. Thank you. Grant Denton, everybody from Reno, Nevada. You can find him on Twitter at Grant A. Denton. And you can also find him on Instagram. And he posts all sorts of good stuff from his motivational speeches to his boxing matches. You can find him at Grant A. Denton on Instagram as well.